It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Episode 28 uh, in a series called Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America. We're heading through a period of time in American history, uh, 1914 to 1974, or as I have oftentimes said, uh, World War I to Watergate. And the reason I've chosen this obscure period of time, which people could look at me like, okay, is because I believe it is foundational in the world we live in in a rather amazing way. And so you can understand so many things just by understanding this period of time. There's certain things that we've struggled with lately. For instance, in the COVID season, uh, we had uh, an, an, an incident with a man named George Floyd. And that, it, it's fascinating because depending on what lens you were wearing going into that, you either, everyone was against it, everyone thought it was horrible. But there was a certain group of people, the black community, that were irate to the point where it led to violence and it led to different retaliatory things, the explosion of BLM. And then you have the other side of the ledger, which is like, okay, we know that's bad, but wow, a little bit of an overreaction to something. I mean, George Floyd was doing something wrong. The police, yeah, they overcorrected, but you don't need to defund police as a result. And so if you walked through that time, you saw something, but if you understand what has happened in this 60-year period, you understand exactly what is happening there. And you'll understand why the black community is responding the way they are. And so I think for us to take this little field trip through this period of time is very, very helpful to us. And as believers, one of our desires is, for instance, if we were missionaries in a foreign culture, we would want to understand the language of that culture. We would want to understand the, the processes of that culture so that we could effectively minister to it the truth of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean the culture is correct. It just means to be able to effectively reach it, you need to understand it at a certain level. There are certain sensitivity points that you want to be aware of. I remember when I was going on a missions trip down to was it Mexico, and they said, you need to wear jeans. It's like, what in the world? It's hotter down there. Why would I need to wear jeans? And that was just like some statement about the fact that in that culture, it would be disrespectful to wear shorts. I remember thinking, that is one of the weirdest things I've ever heard. But if you want to be effective... What you do is you remove the impediments. You don't just boldly wear your shorts to make your statement. You are willing to wear jeans and be a little hotter so that you could remove an obstacle that, you know, to what you're trying to accomplish, which is to share Jesus. And the same thing is true today. We have a lot of obstacles, and some of them are very difficult for us to know how to handle, like the pronoun issue that we are dealing with. And so some of us are just like, excuse me, but I'm not a missionary. This is my home country, and I'm going to say exactly what I think. And yet, if you want to effectively reach a culture, I don't mean to compromise. And so that isn't what I would suggest, but I would say to be understanding and to understand the fact that there's a lot of trauma and a lot of hurt in the people you're dealing with, and there are trigger points that are going to cause them to immediately stiff arm everything you're going to say. So how do we effectively walk through this? It's a, it's a challenge. There's no doubt about it, but that's why we're going through this series is I want to begin to sort of sensitize us to the world in which we live because we're missionaries right here, right now in this culture. 
Uh, I just want to put a disclaimer out there for any parent that is listening to this right now, uh, that the thematic elements in this particular message are rather weighty, and so it could be wise to have a parent maybe listen through this one before it's shared with the family. Uh, and I don't mean to intimidate anyone with this. I mean, I have an 11-year-old in the back, if that gives you any indication. I'm not necessarily concerned about it. It's very, very important subject matter, but there are going to be kids in, that are a little more sensitive uh, to the topical matter, uh, and it can be rather traumatic. Uh, there are some weighty things in this particular message, uh, though I'm obviously bringing them up on purpose because I feel they're important. So this is part 28. It's called Chicago Boy. This is about a crime that is going to be committed uh, in Mississippi in 1955. And this crime is going to set uh, something in motion that is going to impact the world in which we live. It is August 24th, 1955, Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market, Money, Mississippi. And that's the setting for the crime, is what it says on the screen. So here's Bryant's... Uh, grocery and meat market, uh, and nothing extremely special about uh, the place, right? But that's the scene of the crime. I'm going to introduce you to the characters in the drama. So first we have Mrs. Carolyn Bryant. She's a store clerk, and she's 21 at the time, and uh, people are going to describe her as a cross between like, well, sort of like a brunette Marilyn Monroe. Uh, so uh, attractive, and uh, then we're going to have her husband, Mr. Roy Bryant. I have a picture of him there to the right, and that's Carolyn to the left. And he's the uh, store owner, and uh, he is also her husband. Then we're going to have a guy named Mr. John, Mil I don't know how to say this, Milam, Milam. And he's the stepbrother of Roy. And he's also, you know, just freshly returned from World War II about 10 years before. He's a big guy. I mean, hulking man. And he was a war hero. So, you know, in, in Money, Mississippi, he's well-known, and everyone just sort of ad admires him. And there he is uh, with his wife, uh, Juanita. And uh, then we're going to have another character named Emmett Till. And uh, I'm sorry, uh, for those of you that are historians, uh, I changed the spelling of his name in uh, my notes and forgot to change it in the uh, keynote. It's actually spelled E-M-M-E-T-T, -T, and uh, so sorry about that. Uh, but he's a 14-year-old Chicago boy. And right now, you don't know what's going on, and you're just getting all this data, and it's like, okay. And I'm not going to show you a picture of Emmett just yet, but uh, I'm going to describe Emmett. Uh, so uh, my problem is you see my spelling of it under Emmett Emmett Till's cousin is spelled incorrectly, but then my quote, it's spelled correctly. Isn't that going to drive you crazy? Uh, Emmett was a prankster. He never had a dull day in his life. He enjoyed life to the fullest. He used to pay people to tell him jokes. Could you imagine paying someone to tell you jokes? He liked to laugh. He was a fun kid. I, I've studied a lot about this 14-year-old. and He's very interesting, uh, very delightful. The 14-year-old's agenda on August 24th, 1955. So he's going to enter into Bryant's grocery and meat market, and he has an agenda, and that's to buy two cents worth of bubble gum and some soda pop. I mean, it's a fairly, I mean, nothing about the story is standing out, right? I mean, what kind of crime do we have here? But he did more than that. 
He placed the two cents directly into Mrs. Carolyn Bryant's hand and then whistled at her when he was leaving the store. I know, uh, serious crime here. So a bit of backstory. So Emmett Till wasn't from Mississippi. He didn't realize that his Chicago ways weren't welcome down in these southern parts. A few weeks prior, Emmett's great uncle had come to visit his family in Chicago. Emmett begged and begged and begged his mom to go with his great uncle back to Mississippi. She was nervous about sending her only child off on an adventure like this, but she finally caved. She warned Emmett that in Mississippi, things were different than in Chicago and that, she, that, he, hoped she, that he hoped that he would behave himself. Emmett promised to behave. She gave Emmett his late father's signet ring, which bore the initials LT. Emmett put the ring on his finger and excitedly danced out the front door and hopped into this, his, his great uncle's car. Sorry about some of the grammar in this. You can see, I mean, I, I put together a lot of messages over the weekend, and I'm definitely seeing the effects of that uh, in some of these things. But when you're telling a story, you know, when, in, whenever there's a, the camera zooms in on something, have you ever noticed that? Like someone leaves their wallet and, you know, then they, and then the camera zooms in and shows the wallet sitting there. You know that that's going to play into the storyline, right? So if I'm telling you a story and I'm going to say that he's given a signet ring uh, of his, his late father, you know, that's just classic storytelling. You're all over it. You're like, oh, I know that that ring has something to do with this. There's no way Eric would have brought that up otherwise. And you'd be right. The incident. So I'm going to try and describe this. This has uh, been detailed from so many different angles. There's going to be a very long court case on this. It's going to draw this out. There is going to be a lot of even data that's going to come out even after the fact. There, there's a reason for that. So I'm giving you a very, very slimmed down version because my point isn't actually the story. Emmett Till, along with his cousins and some of his cousins' friends, entered Bryant's grocery and meat market with the intent of buying two cents worth of bubble gum and soda pop. Emmett decides to show his Mississippi relatives the cool pickup techniques of a Chicago city kid and delivers Mrs. Carolyn Bryant a wolf whistle as he leaves the store. Mrs. Carolyn Bryant heads to the back of the store where she sees Juanita, her sister-in-law. She tells Juanita about the flirtatious 14-year-old. They both decide that it would be best not to share the antics of the 14-year-old flirt with their husbands because such flirting simply wasn't appropriate in Mississippi. I know now, if it's going through your mind right now, like, okay, now this is a crime scene? Yes. You know, what we're seeing is, is a serious crime. And yet I understand in your mind if you're trying to figure out, no, I still haven't seen the crime. So the leak. See, Juanita and Carolyn are going to decide not to share it. And there's reasons for that. Because Juanita is married to John. Remember Milam or Milam? I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Well, I need to pick away. Milam. There it is. That's how it's pronounced now. And then Carolyn's, of course, married to Roy. They are out of town. They're, they're, they're running a side business in addition to their store, uh, you know, trucking. So they're trucking like some floor, uh, flowers somewhere, and they're gone for a few more days. And so it's just decided, don't tell them this. And because this is just inappropriate in Mississippi to do. However, the kids are listening in. And when the, the, when the husband comes back, Daddy, Daddy, did you hear what happened when you were gone? So there's going to need to be a correction, because what this little guy did, this 14-year-old, was just inappropriate in Mississippi. Uh, and so this needs to be dealt with. 
the abduction of Emmett Till. In the middle of the night, uh, John and Roy are going to come to that great uncle's house and they're going to abduct him because they're going to teach him a lesson. They're going to show that that isn't what you do. You don't flirt with the clerk at a local grocery store. It's time to teach this Chicago kid a lesson. I mean, we're in Mississippi now. Hold it. Stop right there. Is there something more to this story? Listen to this. Yes, there is. I'm so glad you asked. See, there's something about this story that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. If you're just listening to it on the surface, you recognize that, okay, it probably was inappropriate for a 14-year-old boy to whistle at the store clerk when he was leaving, showing off for his buddies, sort of like, look what I can do, look what I learned in Chicago. And yet you could also pass it off as somewhat cute and juvenile, right? And you could say, you know what, that's how kids behave. And yet not in Mississippi. And you could say, what do you mean not in Mississippi? I, I was in Mississippi once and I heard someone whistle. And I'm not saying that you may not have heard someone whistle, but this is 1955 Mississippi, and there's something about Emmett that you may not know. Of course, some of you may have put the pieces together. There's something more to the story. Did I not mention that Emmett Till is black? You see, there's a certain code, and if you've gone through this series, you've, you know about it. It's called Jim Crow. Jim Crow is not actually a person. It's a code it is a way that things work in America. And you don't violate that. There is a position that the blacks have. Yes, they were set free by the Emancipation Proclamation. However, it is not truly full citizenship. No one wants to say that out loud, but the black people do not have full citizenship and full rights. They have equality, but with separation. And so they have separate bathrooms, they have separate water fountains, they have separate parts of the bus that they sit in, they have separate schools, they have separate communities to live in. And when it comes to a white and a black, the white always gets preference, and the black person does not get preference, ever. The black person always shows respect to the white person, lest they actually show any sort of, you know, attitude, the white community will put it down. And so there's something called a correction in the culture, and it keeps everything balanced. You see, if there is a white person that actually defies the system, then the white community, did I say that correctly? If there's a black person that defies the system, the white community has been programmed for generations to bring correction and order to that situation. That can happen in various ways. It could be simply roughing someone up. Oftentimes, it would involve something known as a lynching. A lynching is a very extreme term, and I have covered it in the past, but it is making an example of a black person, and you will kill them violently to the point where Everyone in the community feels it. And you know when the FBI comes in to investigate, you know that not one person in the white community will say a word. Not one person, get this, in the black community will say a word. You could say, why not? Because if they do, they're next. A white person will be lynched if they speak about what the white people do to maintain the order. A black person will be lynched if they dare squeal about what they know. And this is how you maintain order in America. 
Okay, so I love our country, and I'm not trying to bash our country. I'm just saying there's something wrong here, and I don't think it takes a lot for us to see that there's something wrong here. Emmett Till, the best we can know, he was alone in that uh, store for one minute, maybe less. His cousins ran out. He was just paying. And when he paid, it's likely that instead of setting the money on the counter, he set it in her hand. A black person never touches a white person. A black boy never touches a white woman. And if he set that money in her hand, that is, you know, high level violation. And so there's a reason why Carolyn and Juanita are not going to say anything because they know how Roy and John would respond. And so daddy, daddy, did you hear what happened when you were gone is going to create an avalanche in this situation. So here's Emmett Till. This was taken about seven months before he was, uh, uh, <clears throat> before the event. Look Magazine in 1956. So this is all happening in 1955, August. In 1956, Roy Bryant and John Malam are going to be paid $4,000 to tell their story. They've already been tried. And now uh, they're going to tell their story. And this is part of Look Magazine is actually going to have what John is going to describe in this situation. So here's the Look Magazine. You can see at the top, it says the shocking story of approved killing in Mississippi. So here's John. He says, and I'm, I have a tough time. This is a tough thing for me to know how to read because the way that they spoke back then, which was still incorrect and still very inappropriate, is still all around. And so the way that they're going to refer to Emmett with what we would typically call the N-word today is very hard to know how to read because I'm not going to read it. Uh, I, and so I have these hash marks so you can at least get the idea of I'm not sure how I'm going to read it, like maybe or something like that, okay? Well, what else could we do, says John? He was hopeless. I'm no bully. I never heard a bloop in my life. I like bloops in their place. I know how to work them, but I just decided it was time a few people got on notice. As long as I live, I can do, I can do, anything, I can do anything about it. Bloops are going to stay in their place. Bloops ain't going to vote where I live. If they did, they'd control the government. They ain't going to go to school with my kids. And when a bloop gets close to mentioning relations with a white woman, he's tired of living. I'm likely to kill him. Me and my folks fought for this country and we got some rights. I stood there in that shed and listened to that boop, throw that poison at me, and I just made up my mind. Chicago boy, I said, I'm tired of them sending your kind down here to stir up trouble. Boop, you. I'm going to make an example of you so just, just so everybody can know how me and my folks stand. He's going to be paid $4,000 to testify to this magazine to share what happened. The Inexplicable, The Dastardly Revenge of Roy Bryant and John Malam. Emmett Till was kidnapped at gunpoint, cruelly beaten and tortured, his head smashed in, his wrist broken, his left upper leg broken, his eye gouged out. He was stripped naked and shot in the head. A large 75-pound cotton gin metal fan was tied to his neck with barbed wire. He was thrown into the Tallahatchie River. It's a 14-year-old boy. It just happens to look very similar to one of my boys. So, you know, there are things that we encounter when we study 
human history. Human history is a dark place to go because human history has something known as sin in it. How we respond to that sin in our own life is the definition of if we go one way or the other. And it's interesting then in how we handle sin in a culture that we're in. That's one of the challenges I've faced in walking through some of these things that we've been addressing in this series, is what am I supposed to do in responding to sin in my culture? Because this is a cultural thing. It's deeply embedded in our culture to the point where I have struggled in looking at it saying, what am I supposed to do here? It wasn't me that did it. I'm not Roy or John. And yet, did you know that so many in Money, Mississippi knew exactly what had happened in vivid detail because John and Roy had shared it all? Because they knew they were free. They knew a white jury would never convict them. Never has happened. In the South, no one ever gets convicted for lynching, ever. And so they know that they're basically doing what everyone approves, including the police department. And so they're going to share exactly what happened in vivid detail. And they're going to feel completely free, and they're going to be boasting about it nonetheless. They're going to be patted on the back for this behavior. The mother of Emmett Till, her name's Mamie Till. So there's Mamie and Emmett. This is what Mamie said about Emmett. Emmett had all the house responsibilities. Remember, his dad had passed away. I mean, everything was really on his shoulders, and Emmett took it upon himself. He told me if... I would work, she worked 12-hour shifts, and make the money, he would take care of everything else. He cleaned and he cooked quite a bit and even took over the laundry. The unrecognizable boy, Emmett Till's body is shipped back to Chicago. So I'm going to try and skip over some of the more hard parts of this, and you would understand if you knew more about the story. But his body is so mutilated and it's now been floating for three days in the Tallahatchie River. They thought it was buried. They, they would have never dreamt that it somehow would have been exposed and come up. But it's unrecognizable. You can't tell that it's Emmett Till. His head is about three or four times the size, and his, his body is bloated. And it's like a horror scene. And they wanted to bury it in Mississippi, and his mom was like, no, no, not in Mississippi. And so she had them bring the body home. And there she is at the train station as his body arrived. The refusal to cover up this travesty. I want Emmett's casket open. And so this is a huge event. And like, I don't know that if you guys have ever heard of this event, but this is a huge event in American history. Because up to this point, what has happened to Emmett has happened to hundreds, thousands of black people. The media would never cover it. It's totally covered up. And again, no one will testify, so they act like it just never happened. Never happened, never happened, don't know anything down here. The FBI started investigating these situations and no one would ever testify. The FBI could not get one conviction. Even though they knew exactly what happened, they had no witness and no ability to prove it. And so the FBI was flustered to no end because they could never bring conviction. These communities could get away with murder and then cover it up as a team. And even the people that are being violated, the black community would never say anything because they don't want to be next. 
And I don't blame them. I totally understand why they wouldn't speak in that situation. So here's Mamie Till. I want Emmett's casket open. I want to let the world see what has happened because there is no way I could describe this. And I needed somebody to help me tell what it was like. So I'm not going to give any of the more graphic pictures of it. But 5,000 people are going to course through and see the open casket of Emmett Till. Roy and John Malam were tried for murder and acquitted by an all-white, all-male jury in Mississippi. They're going to walk free. The reason they are hired for $4,000 by Look Magazine is because of a law in our country called double jeopardy. If you've already been tried for something, you can't be tried again. So they've already been acquitted for murder, so they can acknowledge that they murdered him. They can now say it, and they're home free. And however, it didn't go over as cleanly as they thought. They're going to get money, and then everyone's going to applaud them. Well, this is right at a turning point in our country. This one incident is so going to discuss, because the media is going to cover it. Because it's up in Chicago, the media is going to cover this dramatic event. And you're going to begin to see, even in Mississippi, people are going to start to get away from John and Roy. It's like, hey, hey, hey. And they're going to feel isolated. What has always sort of been, you know, the good old boys club of patting each other on the back suddenly isn't going over so well. PBS.org says, when they were acquitted, the men later sold their story for $4,000 to reporter William Bradford Huey. Two of their defense attorneys helped facilitate the interview that was published in Look Magazine in January 1956. After the town show of support at the trial, the men talked freely about how they killed the young teen from Chicago. So here they are after being acquitted. They were both smoking cigars and celebrating. Uh, it's such a big moment for them. Simeon Wright, who was Emmett's cousin, he was 12 at the time, is going to be one of the best sources. He would always, this was always verbal. He didn't really write very well. Maurice, my older brother, sent me to Bryant's grocery behind Emmett to make sure that he didn't say anything that he shouldn't because he just didn't know the ways of the South. Mrs. Bryant soon afterward left the store, and as he, she walked to her car, Emmett whistled at her suggestively. To this day, I don't know what possessed Emmett to do that. It scared us half to death. We were almost in shock. We couldn't get out of there fast enough because we had never heard anything like that before. A black boy whistling at a white woman in Mississippi? No. And then listen to what Simeon said. He said, our world was never the same after that. Carolyn Bryant, she's going to divorce Roy, and she's going to marry someone with the last name of Donham. She's going to later uh, in the, I don't know, it was about 10 years ago or so uh, before she passed away. I was the mouthpiece of a monstrous lie. Nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him. So there they are in the courtroom. <clears throat> There's Roy and Carolyn and their two boys. There's John, Roy, and Carolyn. It's interesting just to sort of think about how normal they look. And I guess that's part of what disturbs me in this whole storyline is this was normal. This wasn't abnormal. The behavior is demonic. It is fleshly. It is horrifying. But it was overlooked back then. This time period that we're talking about there really is a problem in our country. There is a cancer. Now, at the same exact time, we have the 
invasion of communism that is coming in, which I've covered in some of the, the different things, and we have this red scare. And it's interesting because a lot of black people were being accused also, any, any of them that would gather together were accused of being communists as well because they were the working class and they were obviously up to no good if they're trying to change and subvert our culture. And so a lot of these dynamics are playing together and creating just sort of a perfect storm. November 27th, 1955. So this is going to happen in August. Remember, late August, Emmett Till is going to be murdered, August 28th to be exact. November 27th, 1955, the black community is going to gather, and this is in Montgomery, Alabama, and Rosa Parks is going to attend a meeting specifically about a boy named Emmett Till being killed. Now, Rosa Parks has been around a long time and she's worked with the uh, NAACP. She has been sort of front line saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. But it means nothing. It's just like you know, throwing up your, your voice into the wind and nothing actually ever happens. And but th something about November 27th, 1955 is going to change her. Now, as I say this, it's funny because if I bring up Rosa Parks, Usually it's a liberal that brings up Rosa Parks. You ever notice that? Rosa Parks is like, she's called the first lady of the civil rights movement. And yet, here Eric Ludi is actually bringing up Rosa Parks. I actually did a whole message on Franklin Delano Roosevelt too. I, I think it was called The Man I'm Not Supposed to Like. And it's interesting because we're pre-programmed in how to look at things, but it's with a political lens. It's like if you have a certain political persuasion, you're not allowed to bring someone up and talk about their virtue at all. You can't do that, lest you support their political cause. What is her cause? You ever thought about that? She thinks that blacks should have full citizenship, that they should be treated as equal, that they should not endure things like this and have people be able to murder them and get away scot-free. You know, as far as I'm concerned, I agree with Rosa. And why anyone wouldn't agree with her is more shocking to me. It's like, yeah, that makes complete sense. You see, this is not a political issue. This is a moral issue. And when you make it a political issue, it disturbs. It's like throws dust in your eyes like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. People are trying to change America. That's always been the threat ever since the emancipation. There's a way we do things here in America, and we have these foreign people that are coming in and trying to change it, which is where the KKK or the Ku Klux Klan comes from. They're going to maintain the order of America. Americanism is their motto. In God we trust. They wear a cross on their white gown. This is, this is disturbing, guys, and it should disturb you at some level, right? Hopefully at a very deep one. But this is our heritage, and I love my country. Don't get me wrong. However, I love my country too much to just sit there and stare and say, eh, you know what, that's just the way it goes. I want to see our country make this right in their soul. And I'm not just talking about some kind of political answer. I'm talking about a spiritual one for all of us. So there's a picture of Rosa Parks on a bus, and that's very symbolic. That's a, that's a very significant picture in history right there, and I'll explain why, because she's going to go to that meeting on November 27th, and then December 1st, 
is a big event in history, in American history. We don't oftentimes look at it that way. Rosa Parks is commanded to give up her seat in the colored section of a bus because the white section was full. A white man needed to sit down. So the way the rules worked is in the bus, the first four rows were always reserved for whites. Most of the bus system, over 70% of the people that used the buses were black people. And so most of the buses, you know, the colored section, but the bus driver had the right to move the sign of where the colored section was up and down in any way he wanted. And he was allowed to carry a gun and he was the enforcer to make sure the black community did what they were supposed to do. And so when the bus driver asks you to get out of your row, because yes, that was the colored section, but now the white uh, section is full. Therefore the coloreds have to, there's two options, move to the back or get off the bus if there's no more room. Even if they pay the fare, they have to get off the bus. And so you can see, I mean, instinctively, you can understand how this would be hard because you have grown up in a culture that didn't have this. It sounds like lunatic to us. It's like, you've got to be kidding. But here's the extra thing. So you do two seats on one side, two seats on the other. And so there were four black uh, people sitting there, Rosa being one of them. And the bus driver is going to come back and he's going to ask them all to get up. You have to all get up for one man to sit down because a white person cannot sit across from a black person either. The whole row has to be reserved because this is a white person. White people and black people, they don't mix. When a black person would come to a restaurant, they had to bring their own silverware and pail lest they infect the silverware and the plates of the establishment. This is, when you went to buy clothes, you couldn't just try on clothes as a black person and put them back on the, the rack. You have to buy them because no white person is going to want your clothes now that they've been sullied by a black person. This is the mentality back then. And so Rosa, it just happens to be, I keep calling her Rosa as if she's Spanish. Rosa uh, would be a better way of saying it. Sorry for those of you that are very particular in how I say it. I've spelled Emmett wrong. I'm pronouncing Ro Rosa wrong. But for her, she sees it clearly. This is wrong. This is immoral. You do not treat a human being like this because of the color of their skin. For her, it's like clear. And in this moment, it crystallizes. I paid a bus fare. I'm an equal citizen in this country. I have rights in this country. I'm sitting in a seat that I took first. And now three, three of my friends and me are being asked to get up simply because of the color of our skin. And she doesn't get up. So here's how it goes. Bus driver to the four blacks on the bus. Y'all better make it light on yourselves and give me those seats. The other three blacks stood up and went to the back. Bus driver to Rosa Parks. Are you going to stand up? Rosa Parks looking straight at the bus driver. No. Bus driver flustered, not quite sure what to do. Well, I'm going to have to have you arrested. Rosa Parks replying softly and still sitting next to the window. You may do that. And this is going to spark something right here. She will be arrested. And there's argument about this picture that it was after her second arrest. <laughs> Uh, but I don't think it matters. That's still her being arrested. Rosa Parks said this, I thought about Emmett Till. 
And when the bus driver ordered me to the back, I could not go back. I paid the same fare as the others and I felt violated. The empowerment that I felt covered me like a quilt on a winter's night. Now, I don't think you and I could possibly realize how hard this was for Rosa to do. She actually is going to, when she talks about the event, is going to say, I didn't actually think I was going to make it off the bus alive. There was another man that is going to be shot on the bus because he was belligerent. Remember, these bus drivers you know, have guns, but they'll also call in police officers, and police officers will put you down if you're a black person, and you begin to resist. And there's, it's very easy with the jury to make it clear that it was self-defense. And so this has been proven time and time again, which is why, and this is why I want us to be sensitized. When you see something like George Floyd and you see an overreaction by the black community, you need to recognize that there's a long history to this, that a lot of those that are even alive today, these, the black community, have a history with lynchings in their past. Uh, and a lot of the lynchings are overseen by the local sheriff. So you can understand why the police are not someone you just go to and trust. Now, for those of us that have only had pleasant experience with the police, and we know that they're upstanding and God-fearing people, it's not an issue to us. In fact, we get offended. But if we could at least get inside the shoes and walk a mile, we might at least have a greater understanding of why this is such an issue. I really would prefer to not defund the police, guys. I think it's a very bad idea. But I do understand, if this is in your heritage, why you would have a tough time trusting the police to have your interests at heart. So Emmett Till, his death is going to spark something. I don't know if you've ever heard of the civil rights movement. The civil rights era is going to explode right here. December 1st, 1955. Why? Because of Emmett Till. And because of Mamie Till bringing his body to Chicago and the media beginning to cover this, people in this nation are actually going to see something. And up to this point, no one had the guts to stay in their seat because they're likely not getting off the bus. What does it take for one person to actually say, no? Oh, that's a, that's a hard one. For someone to actually go into action mode, instead of just think, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, to actually stay in your seat and say, no. Whew, well, I'm gonna have you arrested. You can do that. Those are hard moments in our life. Now, this is the civil rights era. I'm not a, you know, a guy that's sitting around championing civil rights movements. And I, I have a, a deep heart and a passion for what is behind all this. I see it, I, but that's not my grand crusade. My grand crusade, I believe, hits at even a deeper place to change the world. Because we could have civil rights and everyone could go to hell. That actually isn't my grand achievement in life that I want to go after is civil rights, even though I believe that in a healthy, God-fearing country, we would treat each other as royalty, not just as equals, but as royalty. That we're supposed to consider others as more important than ourselves, not less important. So in a God-fearing Christian culture, what would I expect? 
But what if this isn't a God-fearing Christian culture? What should I expect? Well, I expect humanity to behave as humanity, and I recognize how that works. Pride, arrogance, superiority, that's just how it works. And so I'm, though I care deeply and I desire to stand on behalf of the Emmett Tills and the Rosa Parks, I do, because that is incorrect treatment. When James Blake, the bus driver, is walking back, what would I do? And I've, I've, I've tried to put myself in this situation because Leslie's parents grew up in the South in this time period. And as Janet, Leslie's mom has said, it's like complete blind spot. You know, the fact that the black people had to sit in a different part of the theater, you don't even think about it. You don't think of saying, hey, come on down here and sit in my seat. You don't ponder, it just becomes a part of your culture that you don't question. And even the black people, it's part of their culture and they don't question it, except for they live in fear and have shotguns and they're always waiting. Rocks go through their windows and it's all intimidation and fear. Don't you dare get out of your place. And if we could, would we want to change that? So I'm gonna leverage this in a different direction now. All of that to get to the fact that there's another Chicago boy that's gonna travel south. Same exact time period, guys. What, if you've ever heard of Jim Elliott, there is going to be another awakening. So the civil rights era is going to explode at the very end. So we're talking December 1st, 1955. Jim Elliott is going to go to Wheaton College up in the Chicago area, and he is going to go south to Ecuador. And there's a picture of Jim. Jim Elliott is one of the big influences my, in my life. So Emmett Till and the death of Emmett Till is going to awaken Rosa Parks. How about the death of Jim Elliott? For those of you that know the story, he and his, what is it, five of them? So it's, is it four others or five others that are going to be killed by the Aka Indians? So the Chicago boy is violently killed. Listen to the, look at the date, January 8th, 1956. Remember, Rosa Parks is going to sit on the bus December 1st, 1955. And it's going to awaken what we know as the civil rights era. Well, you know what's going to happen January 8th as a result of this? Life magazine is going to cover this, and it is going to explode, and the Church of Jesus Christ is going to be freshly awakened to what it means to stand for Jesus, even unto death. Just as the black community is being stirred, to be willing to stand, even though they know they may die, to say, this is wrong. To actually even say that could mean a lynching. This is wrong. And they were risking their life just to stand, without even violence, just to say, hey, this is wrong. So the death of the Chicago boy awakens a multitude. Guys, I'm one of them. I mean, I wasn't even alive back then, but that movement is going to create, it's going to usher in a grace into the church of Jesus Christ to stir us. Just like you're going to see Emmett Till, Rosa Parks actually change things. And there's going to be an alteration of history. And the same is true with the church of Jesus Christ in this exact time. Matthew 27, 50 through 54. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. There's going to be a torture, and there's going to be a death of a man named Jesus Christ, who is, yes, more than a man. He's also God. And this death, this tortured death, is actually going to lead to 
a revolution. It's going to awaken something known as the church of Jesus Christ. Listen to this death, though. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Okay. I mean, that's some pretty extreme stuff that's happening at this death. We have new life coming forth. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. This is an awe-striking moment, the cross. The death of Jesus is going to be the life for the church. It is going to change everything. Becoming a real-life action hero, it begins with a death. I've oftentimes thought about this subtle difference between being a believer in our head and being a believer in our life, our action. And most of us understand, you know, even as we're at Ellerslie, we're wrestling to grip, to grasp, to believe, to acknowledge in our brain, to come to land our feet on something solid. But there's a difference because there was a lot of blacks in 1955 that knew this was wrong. And they were upset, but they weren't ready to stay on the bus and to stay in their seat. There was a lot of Christians in 1956 that knew that Jesus was worthy of our life. But there was only a handful like Jim Elliott that were willing to actually go out and face the Akas and risk their life doing it. See, there's a distinction between the two, ones that have it in their head, but then they need to animate it. And this animation, or what I'm calling the action hero, this is what I crave, and I know that you do too, but this is what Emmett Till's death is going to do in the civil rights movement. This is going to lead to the Mississippi bus boycotts. This is going to lead to an organizing of this movement in Mississippi, or I'm sorry, in Alabama, and Montgomery, Alabama, and guess who's going to be put as the head? An unknown, relatively unknown pastor who had just moved there named Martin Luther King. All of that is coming out of Rosa Parks sitting in that seat. And that's going to trigger a whole bunch of other events we're just about to get into, guys. Because when we start going into the 60s, it's the explosive revolutionary time period. The same thing that's happening. You're going to see it in the church. You're going to see it in the culture. You're going to see a lot of flamboyant behavior. And it is going to be a rejection of old moorings. Some people are going to grab a hold of old moorings and they're going to fight. It's going to create a split in our country unlike we've ever seen. It's known as the 60s. And it's a pretty extreme time. But it's important for us to recognize we are a product of this in this country. And so what I desire, see, when I look at Rosa Parks, I'm actually very impressed. I, I'm very impressed. I know I'm not supposed to say that if, I'm, if I lean conservative, and I'm going to say it anyways. I'm very impressed. I'm very impressed with anyone who is willing to put action behind their convictions. It's like, this is wrong. And if you believe it's wrong, then put action behind that. As opposed to just thinking in your head, there are things that are wrong all around us that we do nothing about. And to actually see someone who's willing to do something about a wrong, I like it. 
You imagine how hard it would be to be in Money, Mississippi and to know what Roy and John did and to have the FBI come up to you and say, I'd like to talk to you. Uh, you may know something about a recent murder that took place. You know how hard it would be when you know something to speak it? How many action heroes are there that are willing to actually speak knowing that they likely would be lynched if they did? Would you be willing to speak the truth? Well, what do you think Christianity is? Christianity is the willingness to speak and be an action hero, knowing full well in most cultures around the world, throughout world history, the Christian will die if they confess. But you must remain in that seat if you're on that bus. If you're, if you're Jim Elliott, you must go reach that people group. It is your privilege. It is your honor. But you may die, Jim. Yeah. To live as Christ, to die is gain. What's your point? So becoming a real-life action hero, how do we do this, guys? How do we get from head to life? How do we get it out of just our inner man wrestling with these truths to having it actually stand boldly in this culture? It begins with a death. Emmett Till, Jim Elliott, these are going to be sparks. Well, what is it for us? It's Jesus Christ. You need to see that cross. You need to see the suffering Savior. You need to realize it was for you. How can you stare at that sort of givenness and do nothing in response? If he gave everything, you must do something. Rosa Parks is going to say that she was empowered. Every time she would think of Emmett Till's death, it's like, this must stop now. You know what? We have something greater than Emmett Till's death to motivate us. We have the death of Jesus Christ but it's not just the death, the resurrection, the empowerment of his Holy Spirit to be able to live in these bodies in this hostile world in such a way that declares Jesus Christ to the nations. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What do you think taking up a cross looks like? That's an execution device. If you're going to follow me, you need to recognize you're going to be pierced through with a spear, just like Jim Elliott was. You're going to recognize that just like Rosa Parks was immediately thrown into jail right after this, you need to recognize that there are real-world consequences to standing for Jesus. So if anyone's going to come after me, they need to count that in, the very beginning. Mark 10, 21, then Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, one thing you lack Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. Remember that rich young ruler guy? <laughs> this is a hard message, especially when you're an American. I mean, you could just say rich young ruler, you could say the American. Because this is what we have. We have a lot to give up. And Jesus looking at him loved him. Oh, that's encouraging. But Jesus loves him too much to just pat him on the back and say, I recognize because you're wealthy, it's going to be harder for you. So I'm just going to say, just keep your money and live the way you are. I'll, I'll tell all the poor people to give up everything they have. Instead, it's one thing you lack. Go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor. Are you willing to give up everything is the concept. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come, take up your execution device. Accept the fact that this will cost you your life and follow me. And the guy uh, really struggled with that. Sort of like we do. Luke 9, 24, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So why would we get up on the bus even though we know it's wrong? 
because we want to save our life. We want to make our life easier. Why would we not go with Jim Elliott to reach the Aka Indians? Because we want to save our life. And look, I have a whole life to live. I, have a, I want to be married. I want to have kids. I have dreams. I have ambitions. And yet, if you hold on to your life, you will lose it. If you think that by securing your ease, you're gaining something, you're actually giving up that something. The very thing you're interested in, you're forsaking by doing that. God's saying the secret is to give up your life. Let it go. Let me have it. I will take very good care of you. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then we're going to finish with this quote by Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Father, we want to be action heroes. We want to be those that do, those that act, those that live it, those that speak it, those that confess it. But we struggle with the cross part of this. We don't want to die. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to have difficulty. We don't want to have inconvenience. But Lord, there comes a point in our time when we finally are stirred, as Rosa was by Emmett's death, as the church was by Jim's death. Lord, may we be freshly stirred today by your death. You gave up everything for us. And the least we could do is give up everything in return. Lord, this is unto you for your glory, for your honor, for your praise. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.